Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. A key to safe investing is finding the absolute best-in-class operator. Don't just take someone's word directly, but find others who've done business with them and can report success over a significant period of time. Today's guest, Dave Zook, founder of The Real Asset Investors, is a successful business owner and savvy investor who's created lucrative partnerships with proven, vetted, experienced operators. So today we have with us such an interesting guy from the perspective that he has done so many different things and is continuing to do different things, not just in real estate, uh, not just in ATMs, but uh, in all kinds of businesses. So I've been just so excited to pick this gentleman's brain. He is the founder and CEO at The Real Asset Investors, owner at Horizon Structures, and really the list is just too long. So those are a couple things I picked from his LinkedIn. Dave Zook, welcome to Street Smart Success. Hey, Roger. Thanks for having me on your uh, on your show. I'm looking forward to it. Yep. I am excited, as I said. And I guess my first question is part of what holds intrigue for me is that you're in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, of all places, which I actually uh, ha- have the fine distinction of having been to one time. And I thought it was an incredibly cool town. I just had no idea what to expect. And it's like, wow, man, like these 200 year old buildings. But how, how did you wind up in Lancaster? Well, I was uh, I was born here, so I've lived here all my life. Um, I live today. I live about two miles from where I was born. So I geographically, I've uh, stayed pretty local. Now I travel all over the country, and I've stayed, you know, outside of the area for you know several weeks at a time sometimes. But uh, I've I've only lived in Lancaster County all my life. I should ask the question. Uh, how did your family, A, wind up there, and B, how long have they been there? So my grandfather, my great-grandfather, they've all lived here right in this area. Uh, Beyond that, uh, you know, I'm not too much of a historian, so I don't know how long before that we we, uh, migrated from Europe, but uh, it's... uh, as long as I can remember, and even my parents, grandparents, and great-grandparents have been in this area. Got so we're it. We're pretty deep, deeply rooted right here locally. Because it's, it's really in the heart of Amish country, correct? It is. We are the second highest Amish-populated area in the country, and maybe, maybe the world, probably the world. What's the first? That's in Holmes County, Ohio. Holmes County, and I'm an Ohioan, but I don't know exactly where Holmes County is. Yeah, but whatever. That, that is, uh, I believe, that's sort of north, uh, northeast, or north central. Uh, not too familiar with that area out there either, but uh, you know, I know their their Amish population is a little bit larger than here in Lancaster County. Yeah, well, I'm I'm from Cleveland originally. I'm in the Bay Area now, and and they're Amish very close to there. I don't know Holmes County or not. So, you know, I was preparing this conversation and it's like, you've done so many different things that I just figured I'm going to go kind of with you, you know, totally ad hoc or uh, spontaneous. I am going to start with the owner at Horizon Structures. And and I guess the first question is, 
Um, you know, you could talk about the business, but what was so interesting is that I heard you on another podcast where it's you and your brothers and I believe your dad is in the business, but you can correct me if I'm wrong. But nonetheless, it, it says you, you are the founder of it. And so did you find it, found it yourself, start it, and then bring in your family? Or what was that like? I did. So I, we, we actually are very involved in the modular building business. So today I'm an owner or co-owner in three different modular building businesses. And one of those is Stolzfus Structures. And that is actually the family business. That's uh, my dad bought that business the year I was born. And I sort of grew up in that business. Then in 2001, I founded Horizon Structures, which is more in the, you know, the uh, our family business. Uh, it has to do with building storage sheds and garages, modular buildings. Uh, Horizon Structures, which I founded in 2001, has more to do with the equine network and horse barns, modular horse barns, and we built some riding arenas. And, and so we're sort of the authority in the modular horse barn space. So I started that business uh, when I was in my 20s back in 2001, and um, that's been doing very well. And then I you know, in 2016, I invited my three younger brothers to join me in that business, and I sold them sold them part of that business. And then in 2016, I believe, or 2020, I believe it was, uh, I sold another 20% of the business off to my son. Uh, so my oldest son and I and my three younger brothers own that business. Then we have one more. It's more in the line of, of sort of a second home sort of business. Uh, it's called Zook Cabins, and that's also um, modular homes and modular cabins. So we're, we're heavily uh, involved in the modular building business, and we ship these buildings all over the country. Are there any uh, sisters in this family? Uh, so I was part of a family of 11. So I had, uh, of course, mom and dad, and then I've had, uh, then there was four of us boys and, and five sisters. So yeah, there was a bunch of us. That's a big family, but you're, you're not Amish or are you? So my parents are Amish. So we're, we're now Mennonite. In fact, all of the, all of my brothers and sisters left the Amish and, and went down that road and, and we're now, you know, Mennonite or it's sort of a branch off of the Amish, but it's uh, not quite as conservative. We don't drive horse and buggies. We don't, uh, you know, and we we have cars and electric and internet and smartphones and you know all of the you know sort of technologies that you'd be familiar with, uh, much more so than the Amish community. You know, God, that's fascinating. Yeah, I don't want to I don't want to derail, but there was an interesting book called Rumspringa, maybe ten or so years ago, about these Amish that I guess I guess in that world they're encouraged to go out and live in the outside world for a year because it's been a while since I read it, and they all end up coming back, basically, to the faith. There's TV shows, there's books, there's novels, there's, uh, you know, and a lot of those, as you can imagine, um, you know, that reality TV uh, that's out there is anything but real. Um, Typically, in any sort of news story, they take the, like, the 1% of the most extreme so that it makes a really good story. It's really not, you know, it really doesn't give you a good picture of the Amish in general, but hey, it sells, and that's what, uh, (laughs) you know, that's that's what they like to write on, a little like CNN today. 
So the last question, and then I'll move on about that. How many Amish are there in the country? I have no idea. Okay. There's a a bunch. (laughs) What kind of revenue does Horizon Structures do? Uh, So revenue last year in 2020 was somewhere around 15 million. Got it. So what, what what a healthy, you know, kind of boutique cottage business. My, my goodness. And so this is where it's like, I didn't even know where to begin on this is like, what are all the different businesses that you've done, successes, failures, however you want to define that, I guess, you know, what did you do, you know, after founding and I guess stabilizing horizon structures, you know, not to mention all the real estate stuff you've done. Yeah, so I started. I founded a, tra- a trailer company, and we we manufactured trailers, aluminum trailers, and and we had a full blown retail uh, trailer store. Uh, I realized when I started getting into real estate and syndication, I soon realized that that wasn't my passion, and I sold the company. I've started numerous companies or partnered or partnered with with uh, folks, and we've we've done you know different things, but. Primarily, the the four companies that that um, have really done well and that I'm active in today are the three modular companies that I mentioned, and then the real asset investor. And the real asset investor is really where most of my time, energy, and focus is today. I'm still, you know, involved in the uh, key decision making in our in our modular businesses, and I'm also involved in the marketing for those three companies. In fact, I have a marketing team that reports to me directly and we, we, you know, I'm involved in the strategic side of the marketing and, and keeping an eye on that. So that's, that's pretty much my involvement. You know, I'm, I'm obviously a board member and, and I'm involved in making the key decisions, but mostly uh, marketing. And that's what I like doing. So then tell me about real asset investors, if that's where you're spending the bulk of your time. Yeah, so that's a company that uh, that I started ooh, going on ten years ago, and I really, you know, from the time I was, you know, preteen, I I was an investor, and and you know, at my core, I'm an investor. So the reason I'm involved in in several different modular businesses is I'm an investor. So I'm an investor, and you know that that's you know when I get into different asset classes i'm really getting them in getting into them for myself first and it sounds selfish and i and i guess it's it sort of is but you know i i don't necessarily go out and look for different asset classes for my investors i look for them for me and then when i find something that i really like then I take it out to my investor base, and uh, and I'll syndicate deals, and I'll put packages together for them for them to invest in. But it really, you know, it's it's always, you know, from the time I was a teenager, you know, it's I would go out and look for, you know, different asset classes to invest in, different real estate asset classes to invest in, and then it's only been the last ten years when you know some of those really took off and started doing doing really well. And I wanted to scale those, you know, we had room to scale. And then I, then I started building a, an investor network and, and started, you know, bringing investors to the deal. So how many different asset classes are you invested in at this point? Well, primarily, I've got three core asset classes that I, you know, not only invest in myself, but, but also offer to my investor network. Now, 
there's there's more that I invest in personally, but oftentimes what I'll do, and I'll give you an example in the ATM space. I invested in ATMs for going on you know almost four years until I became a part of the team, partnered up with them. I'm now part of the management team. We manage the fund. And, and now I've taken it out to my investor group and we've really scaled that business. So the three core asset classes that, that I'm involved in that I offer to my investor network is self-storage, ATMs, and carbon. And, you know, those are the three that I'm most active in. And, and they're the three that I that I take to my group and syndicate. Is the last one you said carbon? Yeah. So we, we have a project going on in Texas where we take um, coal and we run it through a distillation process, which is patented internationally and domestically. And, a, you know, it, it, this distillation unit is sort of like a giant oven. And you you rotate the coal through this giant oven at slow speeds and high heat. This, this oven goes up to 2,000 degrees in temperature. And what happens is sometime during the process of running this coal through there and agitating it through this distillation unit, the coal starts to break down. It releases oil, gas, and liquids. And we sell those uh, products to a household name company who... Everyone in your base would recognize, but it's a it's a household name company, and we sell that product to them under contract, and uh, it's it's just been really it's just been working out really well for us. Number one, it's it's a it's sort of a uh, it fits in the in the category of you know sort of energy products or oil, gas, liquid that kind of product. So you get uh, the tax incentives like you would get for, you know, a, you know, we get hundred percent bonus depreciation, you know, as if you were going out in the market with something that, and you were taking a whole lot of risk. So hundred percent bonus depreciation. Then we also get a 15% depletion allowance. And one of the best things along that go along with that is it will offset the tax liability on your ordinary income because we qualify under IRS code 469, which is the same one. It's, it's the same IRS code that the, uh, oil and gas guys use. So it's set up very similar, uh, very strategic, and it's set up to protect, uh, let's say, if you were a, a high-paid professional, like a doctor, a lawyer, a, you know, anybody that's got a lot of ordinary income, this is, you know, number one, it's a, it's a, it's a good, strong cash flow investment first, but then it's got that tax benefit that offset ordinary income. So are you saying against W-2 income? Yes. Any income. Any income. Wow. Darn, man. And what what is like the, the, the you know, percent returns on it? If And, and I have no clue. What, what would the minimum be? Is it like 50, 100 grand, 200 grand? And what's typical yield on it? Yeah, so it's a it's a $100,000 minimum. And the IRRs are somewhere in the, in the high 20s, low 30s. So, I mean... Like, how risky is it? How volatile is it? So we're under contract with one of the largest petroleum companies in the world. So to me, it's very low risk. You know, even even during periods of time where we saw early last year, where we saw oil go negative, we were cruising along like nothing ever happened. We're under contract, number one. And the other thing is, it's a very unique, very niche product. So it's not 
you know, Brent or WTI or any of the conventional sort of energy products that you would, you know, that you would think about. It's, it's pharmaceutical grade oil. So this is the kind of product that goes to the pharmaceuticals to make drugs. It's also a, a product that's used to, to make cosmetics and skincare products. So most of your skincare, your cosmetics, all that is, you know, those, those products are coal-based. And it comes from uh, it comes from coal, and that's and that's who we're selling to. It's it's you know that product goes to the refinery, and it gets you know a gallon of that liquid could get chopped up in 10, 15, 20 different kind of segments and do 10, 15, 20 different things. So it's I feel like it's very low risk because of what it is and demand and and the demand for it in the marketplace. How long is the contract? So the contract is for the next uh, seven plus years, but the deal with investors is five years. So it's it's put together like five years and you're out. Um, so you know the operator has the ability to buy us out for a dollar at the end of five years. So the way that the numbers work is you're getting somewhere in between two hundred and twenty to two hundred and thirty percent on your investment over five years. So let's imagine you started with $100,000. When you consider the cash flow and then the direct tax impact, this is money that, uh, you know, that you're saving by making this investment. And, and, and as you mentioned, you know, W-2 income, short-term capital gains, whatever, uh, it'll, offset that, it'll offset the tax liability on that income. So when you consider that the, the tax impact plus the cash flow, you're making about a you know on your hundred on, on your hundred thousand dollar investment, you're getting somewhere between two hundred twenty and two hundred thirty thousand dollars back in five years. That is unbelievable. So here here's a question. So you're a guy that clearly evaluates a lot of different things, right? And you've been investing for a long time, and you're clearly very savvy and informed. Are there any other investments? Because I've never heard of, and you know, I don't, you know, I, I don't know what you know. I you know, I'm just a, a lowly podcast host. Have you encountered other investments that you could write the income off your W-2? You could write off W-2 income. Um, there are some, but there's very few. So normally the, the, the most well-known one is oil and gas drilling. So typically you get you know somewhere between 80, 85% of, of a write-off in the first year. Meaning, if you invest $100,000, you can take an eighty dollars to an $85,000 loss in that first year. So, you know, and that goes against W-2 income. You know, it'll offset the tax liability on W-2 income, short-term capital gains, long-term capital gains, whatever. So, normally, when people think about, you know, how do, you, how do I offset my, the, the tax liability on W-2 income, the very first thing that comes to mind is, is an oil investment, oil and gas investment. There's, there's a few other things, but the challenge is that they're pretty risky and there's also, they're also not known to, to be, you know, to, to make a good return on the cash flow side or the overall IRR side. You know, think wind, solar, you know, typically they're, they're built around energy products. And it's, and it's as simple as this. It's, it's the type of investment that the government wants you to make. Um, you know, typically high risk, 
typically, you know, in the case of solar and wind, I mean, there's not very many solar and wind projects out there that I know that that'll give you a, a really nice, good return. Um, so a lot of times it's around energy. There are a few other ones. Uh, conservation land easement could be one. Uh, that'll offset the, the tax liability on ordinary income. So, you know, there are some, but there's they're very few and far between. So interesting. So from a broad asset, what is your take? And I'm, I'm just kind of switching gears here. What is your take? Because I know you've done, for example, multifamily and you made it clear, you know, your self-storage is a big one right now in, in terms of what your focus is. What is your take, I guess, on the on the scope of real estate stuff, whether it be multifamily, self-storage, retail, office, et cetera? What's your view on all that? There's there's some asset classes that I really like, and then there's some that I wouldn't, you know, that that I wouldn't get close to. And one of those is is big box retail. At one point in 2018, we had more than 3,000 doors in the multifamily space. Uh, we've sold over the last um, two years. We've sold a lot of our multifamily. I may I started making a transition, making a shift in 2017, and I started you know transitioning from multifamily to self storage. Since then, you know I've sold most of my uh, multifamily and and have bought a lot of self storage. Um, so you know 2018, late 2018 was the last uh, purchase I made in the in the multifamily space, and. Uh, it's just really worked out well as far as you know shifting asset classes. I still think there's room for a good multifamily project in in any portfolio, and I like it. Great tax benefits can be a good cash flowing asset, good appreciation, especially over the last ten years. But um, you know, I I made the shift, and and I'm good with it. I'm not looking back. What prompted you making the shift starting in in seventeen and into eighteen? There was a number of reasons I felt like the low-hanging fruit was gone. Some of the, you know, the I sort of got priced out. And, and that's not saying that there's not been good opportunities in the last, um, you know, in the last two, three years. There has been. It just hasn't been as easy. You know, when, when I got into the space in 2010, there was a lot of low-hanging fruit. And I like when I'm going out and making an investment, I like low hanging fruit. I like when there's enough of margin in the deal that you can make a mistake or something can go against you and you still make money. Um, I just, you know, when I see what's going on in the multifamily space today, um, you know, we just, I just sold 184 unit yesterday. Eviction moratoriums, um, you know, I, I, I don't like when, politicians get uh, involved in in my stuff. Uh, and when they tell me that I, you know, there's a, an, an eviction moratorium and people can live in my places for free, I, I don't appreciate that. And so, you know, uh, like I said, I, I, I made the decision to switch. I don't regret the decision. I think it was a good decision. There's still a lot of, you know, there's still a lot of uh, people out there that are doing very well with uh, multifamily, but it's just, uh, it's not, not the direction I want to be heading. I understand. Uh, it was a little bit of a, a rhetorical question, but I, I still wanted to hear it from the, from the horse's mouth. Uh, no pun intended, since you're into equine endeavors. It was self storage. Where, where, where are most of your projects, and are are they ground up? Or are they, you know, in, in place, 
cash flow or what's what's the nature of that and are you doing it with partners and you know all that good stuff yeah so everything pretty much everything that we own is in the southeast so we own a lot of florida georgia north carolina south carolina alabama tennessee so it's kind of all down in that southeast corridor I do do it with partners. We have a, a great operating partner uh, management team. Uh, we've done 20-some institutional-grade assets together, and uh, uh, we, we, we love the asset class, and we love how it's performed, not only through 2008, 9, and 10. It's one of the strongest. Actually, it was the strongest asset class in the commercial real estate uh, you know, it, uh, among its peers, it, it uh, operated the best, it performed the best, it rebounded the, the, the quickest. And uh, same thing in 2020, it, uh, it, it, it worked very well. And we were, we were extremely pleased in how it held up throughout the whole pandemic 2020 and 21. What do you think about mobile home parks? I like home, mobile home parks i've never invested in a home a mobile home park i know plenty of people who who have and i know some of the operators who have i just um i've never gotten into it probably more because uh the the, the reason i haven't is just because i've had so much other things going on uh but i've never invested in a mobile home park and it's not that i don't like the asset class got it so it's just bandwidth that's cool when you said dave uh you've done 20 institutional quality or institutional projects. The term institutional in that context, what does that mean? It's an asset that we could sell to an institution or a REIT. So it's a it's a class A stabilized asset. And, and what are like typical cash on cash returns on those, I guess, on the on the front end? So they're not necessarily value add or you know, what is what does all that look like? So they are value add, and we've got we've got several different asset classes that will get you in the in the double digits on the cash on cash side, cash flow side, really quick. Uh, this is not one of them. Self storage, our business model, and there's there's a lot of different ways to make money in the self storage business, but but our business model is we buy a uh, self storage asset from a mom and pop operator. Typically, it's it's their only self-storage asset, then we'll take it, we'll, you know, let's say it's in a path of progress, we'll take it and we'll add square footage to it. Like we'll, we'll take a, let's say a, a 75,000 square foot facility and we'll, we'll add 50,000 square feet to it. We'll add a lot of climate controlled units to it, which is what the institutions like. Uh, we, we have really good relationships with a lot of the REITs and the institutions, and we know what they want. So we'll go into a mom-and-pop operator, we'll buy that asset, we'll add, we'll force value, we'll really, we'll really go in there and destabilize it, and then we'll, you know, we'll, we'll add the, we'll do the construction, we'll add the units, and then we'll stabilize it back up again, get it to, you know, 85, 90%, 90% occupancy. Normally that process is somewhere between two and three years. And typically, our average hold time is somewhere between three and four years. So, you know, when you buy from a mom and pop operator for a six and a half cap, and then you, you know, enlarge it and you put in professional management, you get the NOI up, you get it all stabilized, and you sell it to a REIT for, you know, four and a half cap, uh, there's, there's just, there's a ton of margin there. So our business model doesn't 
isn't conducive to somebody who wants to come in and, and make a, a double-digit return in the first year or two. During the hold, we're calling it a, a 4 to 7% cash-on-cash cash return. Where you really make your money in, in this space is at the point of sale. So again, the margin when I, that I told you about, we, we really make our money on the back end when we sell. Got it. So it's an IRR play. Yes, very much so. I mean, that is super, super cool. You know, I guess what I've heard about self-storage, again, just at like 50,000 feet is the risk on that asset class is that they're, you know, relative to like multifamily, they're inexpensive to build. And so you just got to be concerned that, you know, like you said, in, in a market that's path of progress, that you don't have somebody that's, you know, buying the land across the street and doing the same thing. Yeah, and that's one of the things you want to look at, like how constricted, how restricted is it? How easy is it for somebody to come in? What's in the pipeline? Are there permits drawn on it? Are any of the big, any of the other big players looking in that market? You really got to do your homework in that case because, you know, you're right. If there is demand for, you know, 500 units in a, you know, tertiary market outside of a major MSA, and then you supply the 500 units and somebody else comes in and builds another 500 units just down the street that's not what you're looking for so yeah you got to do your homework you got to you got to you know figure out okay what's in the pipeline who's in the market how long would it take to get an asset you know like that built in the market and you just got to be smart about it I see. You know what? Let me let me uh, transition. So you're focused on three key areas for the most part in terms of your day to day. I get that, which is investing in these asset classes, which we've discussed. I actually just invested. They just just uh, funded one of your ATM deals last week. So I'm I'm I'm, I'm a proud oh, nice. I'm a proud Dave Zook partner. Uh, there we I, go. <laughs> so. Yeah, you know, and, and Jeremy Roll turned me on to you guys, and so you know, I I I come in with a high degree of confidence, quite frankly. And- well, just the fact that Jeremy Roll, just the fact that you came from Jeremy Roll's side, that in itself should give you a high degree of confidence because we courted him for a, you know a half a year uh, when he was doing his due diligence, and and I can tell you that. Uh, he is a stickler for due diligence, and he was very thorough. And it was, uh, you know, it, it was a real pain uh, <laughs> to uh, entertain him for those six months. But I can tell you that he dug deep, and uh, you know, getting him across the finish line wasn't easy. And he wanted to, you know, I mean, you're talking, you're talking not only the back end stuff, and not only getting on the portal and, and looking at contracts and making sure verifying contracts, but even, you know, to the point where we took him through, I think six or seven different states to do individual spot checks to verify that the machines were where they said they were. I mean, it was painful, but uh, just the fact that you're coming in from the Jeremy side should give you a high degree of confidence because who he is and the reputation he's got. Well, I, you know what, you can never hear enough like confirmation of decisions that you've made, right? It's confirmation bias, but you know, it's, it's absolutely music to my ears because look, I met Jeremy the same way I'm meeting you on a podcast. So we've never even, you know, met face to face. So I'm, I'm glad to hear it. And, you know, you're, you're confirming everything that he said. And so henceforth, that's why I made the investment. Now I have to ask him offline, you know, what, what he 
he thinks of the uh, carbon investment because that sounds, you know, for me, I can write off all my real estate income, but I, I, I frankly, until we started talking, I wasn't aware that there were any vehicles that enabled you to write off W-2. And I still have a contract with a, with a company that um, I as well am in the process of transitioning. And so I still have W-2 income. And so, um, like, wow, that would be pretty amazing. So now I, I gotta, I gotta check with him on that. And, uh, you know, hopefully he, he's been, you know, maybe he's been and seen the, uh, 2000 degree, uh, coal crushing machine. <laughs> anyway, well, go well, and I can tell you that, um, you know, he, he's, he knows I'm involved in something down there. He's not real familiar with it. I haven't had the supply to meet the demand on my side. In fact, I, I haven't been able to service all of my investors. And so, you know, he's a, he's aware that I'm doing something down there, but he doesn't, you know, he's never done any due diligence on it, really. Our, you know, relationship is such that, you know, when that happens at some point, I may bring him in and invite him into the deal, but, you know, that hasn't happened yet. So he's probably not going to be super familiar with it. Got it. Okay. Well, thank you for the heads up. You know, in your business investing, you know, how many businesses would you say you've invested in, even from the teeniest to the largest, whatever the scale is, would you say approximately, you know, since the time you were in your 20s or however you would define it? I've been involved in so many different financings and businesses and, you know, some in a, in a small way and some in a more major facet, but I've, I've been involved in, let, let's just say dozens. Dozens. And I guess my question is, with that amazing experience, like what have you learned from that? What, what do you invest in? What do you look for? And, you know, what do you avoid like the plague? And what do you say, yeah, I'm going to do this? Well, so to me, it starts with it starts with the team. So I'm I'm much more interested in the team. And there, you know, look, there's there's some asset classes that if you had a rock star team around it, and I didn't believe in the asset class, I don't care what I don't care, you know, how good the team is. Like if you came to me and said, "Hey, um, you know, I got this rock star team. They've been in the typewriter business forever, and they're they're the best and whatever." I'm just like, uh, you know what? Uh, I, I don't think so. Same way with you know office. I'm not looking for office. I'm not looking for big box retail. You know, there's some limitations there. But if I really like the team and they're involved in an asset class that I like, I'm going to look at the team first and then treat the asset class as a secondary behind the team. So there's, there's sort of a mix and match there. But, you know, you can't do a good deal with bad people. And so I'm going to, I'm going to keep my eye on the team. Can't do a good deal with bad people. What would you say are, are your most important lessons that you've learned? Doing business with bad people, <laughs> doing and not not evil people. But early early on, I made a few mistakes. Look, I'm I'm an optimist. I I think there's you know by nature, I think there's gold under every rock. And so you know when a good sales guy tells me that he's working on the on the greatest project ever, and that we're going to go off and make you know, millions of dollars together and all that. I, you know, I used to believe them. So teaming up with people that are either incompetent or, you know, operating above their, you know, operating above their skill level. And, and uh, so I, I, you know, look, I, I keep a, a close eye on that today. 
because I've had a few bad experiences. You know, my very first venture into the multifamily space was where I gave, um, you know, I gave a syndicator. I became his only investor in the deal, and that that in itself was a was a mistake. You know, I mean, I, today I'll be much slower to um, really believe in somebody if it's a if it's a new partner. I'll dip my toe in the water and kind of go down the path with them, make sure that I like them, make sure I like to like how they're doing business, make sure I you know have a chance to see them operate and improve themselves. But no, I mean, I, I ended up losing I don't know almost a half a million dollars in that deal. So that was my venture into the multifamily space. <laughs> and you stuck with it. Yeah. I mean, I never did business with him, with him again, but it was, you know, I mean, it was a lesson. It was, it was a lesson. You know, I knew it wasn't the asset class because I knew a lot of people who were making a lot of money in that, in that asset class. But, you know, you learn a lot when there's pain involved and there was, there was a lot of pain involved in that one. How could you better vet? And by, and by the way, I've, I've made, big mistakes too. You know, I'm just like taking me years to forgive myself because at the end of the day, if they're incompetent, you know, it's ultimately, I, I still can only blame myself because I chose it. Right. So to do, to go into business with them, how can you vet people so that to avoid some of the mistakes betting on the wrong people that you have in the past? Well, I guess for me, the first thing is if you cold call me and tell me about your project, your chances of getting me interested is going to be slim to none. It's going to be, that's going to be a tough sell. Um, today I'm so well connected in the investment space that, you know, if I ask around and two or three different people that I, that are also connected, very well connected in the investments in the investment world, this, this community is pretty small. And so when you ask around and nobody knows about the person or ever heard about the person, that's not, that's not good. Um, or when you ask around and, you know, you, you hear, well, actually, normally it works just the opposite. I usually hear really good things about uh, the operator from multiple sources, and then I get interested. So it's, it's not me going out trying to find out who these people are or what these people are about. Usually, you know, that's how it was at first. But now today, it's like I'm hearing all kinds of good things about this team. And then I reach out to the team. So when I when I can hear when I hear somebody say all kinds of good things about themselves uh, and they're trying to sell me on their product or or service, um, I'm I'm pretty skeptical. But when I hear other people talking about them and how great they are and how we made money together for the last decade and how they've done this and that and and, and everybody's singing their praises, you got my attention. So that, it starts with that. And And then, of course, I typically invest with them first. I put my money at risk. I make sure that I like doing business with them. Um, and then at some point, if, if that ends up, you know, if, if all the boxes are checked, then, then I'll say, okay, let's take this to the next level and I'll take it out to my investors and, and we'll do a deal together. Simple stuff, but it's so easy to not adhere to that. So simple, but like life lesson right there is an amazing thing. And I think we're amongst legions of others that have probably made the same kind of mistakes. Well, I, my friend, have run out of questions. You, you've been absolutely fantastic. Dave, uh, how would one uh, get a hold of you? So uh, you can go to our website at therealassetinvestor.com. 
or you can email me or my team at info at therealassetinvestor.com. And I've got reports on self-storage, on the ATMs, on carbon. We're one of the top five ATM operators in the country. Anything we discussed on here between those three asset classes, I got a full report on. Not all of them are you know, opened. We have we have a fund or two that's uh, that's that's closed right now. But there's always opportunities. We always have something going on, and uh, would love to um, would love to engage some of your listeners. I'm happy to hear that you're one of our new ATM investors. That's exciting. Uh, you know, Jeremy is so 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 much so much smarter than I am and so much more experienced than I am. And, you know, it's kind of funny the way you were describing how you invest is, you know, you'll want to hear from other people that have had good experience. And I know he's invested with you too. You know, that's kind of why I came in. And so, um, you know, I guess the only other thing I would say is this, is this, that I asked somebody this, that I podcasted a couple days ago, or I'm losing track of time. Yeah, I guess it was a couple days ago. And I asked him, you know, like, like what lessons he's learned. And I've applied this to my own business, uh, background, which that's for another conversation is he looks for people with a really, in terms of who like is, he says, have a niche and even better, like have a niche within a niche. And, um, because then people are so, not nobody's bulletproof, but their, their knowledge is so strong. And so in his case is he's not just a real estate guy, but, and he's not even just a shopping center guy. He literally is a neighborhood shopping guy, a hundred thousand square feet, you know, with, with the grocery store, the drug store, and then the rest of the inline. And so he's just so tightly niched that, and this guy was, is an older guy. He's like literally in his sixties, but you know, when you're investing with a guy like that, who's been doing the same thing for 30 years, hedges a lot of bets. Yeah. And you're exactly right. And you know, that leads stands and that leads to the question of, well, how can you be efficient or how can you be uh, really good at three different asset classes. How can that, you know, how can you be the pro and the master in all three? And the answer is I'm not. Well, but what I do do is I go after um, that operator. Let's say, I mean, just I'll give you an example. Like the the operator, our, our managing partner in, in the self-storage space, I mean, that's all they do. And they're one of the best in the world at it. And when you look at their track record and their history and you realize the amount of deals that they've done and how those deals have performed and what their average IRR was over that period, look, they know more about self-storage than I'll ever know. And so, you know, that is the way that we can do business the way we do in, you know, three different asset classes because we team up with really good operator partners and, uh, you know, it, it just has worked really well. And that, you know, back to your questions about how do you how do you bet an operator? Or how do you know who, you know, it comes with, it's, it's amazing how, how skeptical or how skittish you get after you've been spanked a few times. And, that, and that's why I'm not running around looking for new operators. You know, I, I do a lot of business with a few operators, not the other way around. I don't do a a little business with a lot of operators hoping to scatter some seeds around and, and hoping they grow. I, I figure out who I want to do business with, and then I do a lot of business with them. Words of wisdom from Dave Zook, man. This has been every bit the conversation I anticipated it will be, and I and I can't thank you enough for your time, and uh, have a great uh, rest of the week. Hey, I appreciate it. It was fun. 
Yep. You got it, Dave. And I'll talk to you soon. All right. Thanks. See you.